Hello friends, my name is Zach and welcome to the Enter the Danger podcast. My guest this week is Marie Genevieve Paulak. She's the founder of Prime Alchemy, which is a game-based learning consultancy. They help companies, some of which are New York Life, Principal Financial Group, SSAB, and the Salvation Army, to develop leadership strategies, succession planning, and productive meeting and facilitation strategies. Prime Alchemy creates transformative games, backed by neuroscience, to help teams unlock their full potential and achieve extraordinary results. Their motto, which I love and think we should all apply to our lives, is change without fear. I'm really excited for this conversation and for what Marie's going to teach us, and I know that you guys are going to learn a lot too. So let's get straight into my conversation with Marie. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited, Zach, about doing this. This is so awesome. I'm glad. I'm, I'm excited too. Um, I'd like to start out with just a few questions to help my guests get to know you a little bit, if that's all right. Perfect. Let's go Wonderful. for it. Wonderful. The first one is, what's one high-impact event that got you to where you are? Um, so I was thinking about this in the sense of, I think it was when my husband came home from work and he looked defeated. He did not look like the person that I married. And it was because he was having such a hard time with a really bad manager. And he's not the first person that I've ever seen look that way. And I kind of thought to myself, work has to be better. We have to be able to send people that we love off to work whole when they leave the house and they come back whole when they come home. And during the day, they're not destroyed or devastated. So that was the event that sort of propelled me into this journey of trying to figure out how to do it better. That's good. They have to come back from work whole. That's a really, I really appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, so who are three high impact people uh, that have helped you become the person that you are? Um, I would say Angeli Gruez, who is the CEO and founder of The Bold House, is one. Um, Jason Hogan, who was my co-leader in a manufacturing company that I worked at for a period of time, uh, we became really good friends. And I think he really helped inform some of the things I do today. And the third is really a combination, if that's fair. <laughs> I would say my parents, you know, specifically, it's not even, I shouldn't say specifically my mother. I think it, they both had a very large influence on how I see the world, um, my view of right and wrong, um, my view on faith. I think they, they're probably the, the two people that have had the biggest impact on me. Yeah. Could you share a story about how they have impact, about the impact they've had specifically, um, if you could around how they've entered the danger with you and how that's shaped who you've become, their willingness to enter the danger? Yeah. So I think with my parents, a lot of it had to do with how I saw them walk through the world and how I saw them entering into those, the what we call entering into the danger, um, especially when it meant that they were willing to risk for the sake of making other people whole and making sure they came out whole. My mother worked in the emergency room. And so 
one of the actually this is a story I told someone the other day. Um, you know, typical teenage angst. I was picking her up from work and I was being a bratty teenager, which you will experience one day when your lovely daughter becomes a teenager. Um, <laughs> and I uh, and she was late coming out. So I'm sitting in front of the hospital with my school books and frustrated because I'm in the car waiting for her to get out of work. And I want to be with my friends and doing other things, you know, typical stuff. And I think I was picking her up because my dad, well, my dad had to go pick up my brothers from some after school activity that they were doing. And so he's, he sent me to go get her. And so um, she gets into the car and she looks exhausted. She's had a long day. It was like 16 hour shift. She's tired. She's been in, in surgery for most of that time. She's just exhausted. Right. Yeah. And instead of even acknowledging the fact that she looks tired, she's coming into the car really drained. I start in on her right away at, you know, like, why were you late? Da, 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 bratty kid. And she turned and she looked at me and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. Do you want me to go back in the hospital and tell the kid that got shot today that we had to rush into emergency, that he was disturbing your day? And that immediately made me go, oh. And as a teenager, it was that idea of there are things and events that happen that are bigger than you, that you have to be cognizant of in the world. There are situations that happen that are bigger than you, that you have to be cognizant and more importantly, you have to recognize that while you might think that you are the center of the universe of your parents <laughs> or your spouse or your work, you're not. And you have to have the grace to be able to recognize when someone else needs you and not just wrapped up in your own thing. And so I think from that moment on, I was about 16, that moment on, I started to be aware of how other people were impacted by what was going on in their day. And I carried that into work because when um, when I started working, I was the manager of uh, a team. I focused more on making sure I was paying attention and listening to the people that worked with me. I never said worked for me. I always believed that we worked together, worked with me. And made sure that I recognized when they were struggling and to be present for them. So that was the big lesson that she taught me from, you know, being a bratty kid. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm amazed at how easily, easily we fall back into this uh, me centered view mm -hmm. of the world where other people so quickly become an inconvenience or, or um, their troubles aren't as important as ours. So I really appreciate that reminder. Um, I imagine as well that, that thinking that way um, not only builds a lot of trust with your team, but, but kind of enables you and gives you a lot more freedom to be able to enter into difficult conversations with them if you can see things from their point of view. Have you found that to be true? Absolutely. Yes. I think the more that you can turn that lens onto someone else, yeah, you can enter difficult conversations in a very drastically different way. So it becomes less about my perspective in a, in a conflict, as an example, and more about recognizing immediately there's another perspective that I have to consider. And it's the person that might be across the table from me. And, that, and that's a key because there you're now focused on 
a win-win versus a, a zero sum. Yeah. Can you, just in case our listeners don't know, can you talk a little bit more just for maybe 30 seconds about what zero sum is? Yeah, sure. So a zero sum is really if I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. I mean, that's really it. And it's this attitude of, um, and there's nothing wrong with competition. Let's just start there. But it's this attitude of competition has to have a winner and a loser versus the idea of we can compete But if we're competing to get to the same objective, the same goal, we're we're working together towards a bigger picture, that it's about how do we all win? You know, it's about how do we get there, achieve this goal, and you are whole and I am whole in the process. I may not have won the race, but as a person racing against me, you pushed me to do better. You pushed me to be successful. So it's not saying that we all have to have participation trophies. It's really saying that recognizing that you won doesn't mean I lost. It means that I've learned something from that. And the next time that we're out in that race together, I'm going to bring my A game because you brought your A game and you brought it in a sense of um, partnership as opposed to um, destroying the other person. Yeah. So this idea that uh, we can both win um, and, and, um, you know, to use the mathematical example, you know, plus if you want to get to zero and you have plus one, you have to take one away, which means if you have the plus one, I have to have the negative one, but this idea that life isn't a zero sum game because you can have plus one and I can have plus one and then we get plus two. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. (laughs) Thank you. I'd love to, to, um, turn the conversation to your work and how you, um, use gamification in your job um, and and specifically how that applies to entering the danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I want to say probably about 15 years ago, maybe more now, I realized that part of the work that we do and part of the inability to really bring our whole selves to work was around how we learn and process things. And when I started to look at you know, going back to a time where learning was easy. If you think around the time before preschool, we all learn through play. It's this idea of you don't learn to walk because your parents gave you a lecture on how to walk and the technical aspects of walking. They played with you to get you to get up and to walk. It was fun. It was a game. And as I started to study the neuroscience of play, I realized that our brains are still wired that way. (laughs) We're still wired to play, if you can believe it or not. But I guess we can all believe it because video games are a billion dollar industry, uh, you know, sports, again, another billion dollar industry. So we have play in our lives, board games, you know, you name it. And so I began to think, how could I bring those continuous improvement concepts, those lean processes into the idea of play. And so that's when I began to gamify um, learning so that when people had to learn a task, instead of focusing on the lecture piece, but really making it so that they were having fun and their retention would go up and they would walk away with, I actually have a skill that I've practiced. And sometimes when people hear gamify, they think it's like we're playing these random games. But the truth is gamification really involves 
having teaching someone something or having them learn something and then having them watch how it's done and then the practice piece of it is them actually doing it and that's sort of the the sort of the secret sauce of gamification having them what i like to call play in the moment actually get their hands dirty and do the the task or the activity and with that that becomes a challenge for some people because some people feel like the workplace has to be very stoic has to be we're constantly have to be serious it constantly has to be in that vein and they forget as humans even in our darkest moments we can find levity and laughter and enjoyment and so that's what gamification does it forces people to tap into the natural tendency of the joy of being human and the joy of learning so it's it's not necessarily playing games but it's it's uh okay now this is we know this is the thing we have to do let's pretend like this is a scenario so so we're giving ourselves scenarios to practice right. as you said and that kind of becomes a game if we're willing to embrace fun and embrace the the spirit of learning yeah absolutely and i will say it's also the combination of actually creating games like i've actually created games for people so that they're doing their work and playing and i'll give you a quick example I worked with an organization that we all know <laughs> um, and they were working on their Giving Tuesday and their Giving Tuesday, they had a new marketing team. This team had not worked with each other before. They were brand new to, some of them were brand new to the organization. Some of them were about a year or two years into the organization. So fairly new people in this massive national organization. And they hadn't, they hadn't worked together. They hadn't been able to make decisions together because they didn't know each other's rhythm. And when I talked to their leader and she told me that that's their biggest struggle, working together. They're great individually, but they can't figure out how to do it together. I created a decision-making board game. And I based it on the work that they were actually doing. The, so the game was based on creating a campaign for Giving Tuesday. They had dice they had to roll. They had little like, you know, um, tokens they had to put on each of the lines so they'd get into a space and the space said, uh, as an example, one of the spaces was, who is not in the room that you need to get approval for your plan? Mm -hmm. And so, and they, the, the great thing was that that's a simple question that you would ask normally for someone when you're doing a discovery. But the fact that it was happening on this board game with them all together, huddled around this board, playing the game, taking cards, writing on the whiteboard that was there, they forgot they were actually doing work. Right. <laughs> and they, they started to plan out their Giving Tuesday campaign right there while we were playing this game. Yeah. And they began to learn how each person made decisions. So one of the cards said, describe your process of, of you know, building building a, a house. How would you do it? And so, of course, there are people like, I've never built a house. But if I were to build a house, this is the process. So as that person was describing the process, the next person would go, well, I would never do it that way. I would do it this way. And then I would interject and say, you both have different decision-making styles on this project. So how do we combine that? And then they start, because it was outside of work, that question, um, they began to start 
talking about how they would do it. And sometimes the question was, uh, you know, how do you bake a cake? <laughs> you know, so it was again taking familiar things so that they could begin to hear how people decided on things, the process of that person's decision and problem solving. And then they began incorporating it in the campaign. So how do you take uh, how do you take this idea of gamification and then how does that apply to having more healthy conflict and, and a, a greater capacity for entering the danger with other people? I love that question, Zach, because what happens is that people struggle with con conflict. You know, they, they immediately have this negative impression of conflict. And our goal is always to help them learn, as Patrick Lencioni would say, productive conflict. You know, where that conflict be begins, that innovation and that conversation. And what game does is it takes it out of being personal. You know, when the conflict is personal, I then bring in all my emotions. I bring in all that stuff that's under the iceberg surface stuff that's causing me angst into the conversation. But if I'm playing a game and the game has conflict in it, you know, there's a task or, or some conflict that's happening, that conflict is separate from me. And now I can begin to process that within the game and then translate it onto whatever the situation is that's in the reality. And that's really where gamification can help people deal with conflict because it pulls you out of that personal conflict in the moment and really pulls out the conflict of the idea, the objective, as opposed to interpersonal. Right. So that, that goes back to the idea that Really, when we talk about healthy conflict, we're talking about conflict around ideas, not around people. Absolutely. So, so what's a what's a practical way? Like, do you have a story or an example you could share about? Hey, this is a this is a piece of conflict that a team was having, um, and they weren't able to work past it because of all this personal stuff going on. I, I'd love to hear if you have a story you could think of um, to share. Yeah, I do. I have one that I actually, t I tell this all the time right before I do the personal history exercise that's in five behaviors. Yeah. Um, and this, and it's a true story. Uh, when I was working in manufacturing, I had two engineers that, but they would butt heads all the time. They just, for whatever reason, they just couldn't figure out how to get along with each other. And um, I had finally had enough of the conflict because we weren't moving forward on work because it became so personal between them. So I dragged all the engineers into a conference room and I had them do the personal history. And for those who are listening who may not know what the personal history is, it's just three innocuous questions that uh, the table group has created that really does help people open up a bit more about understanding each other and building trust. Uh, and so I had them go through the, the three questions. And so the first question is where you're, you're from. The second one um, is the, your birth order. And I always add also um, how many siblings you have within the birth order. And then the third is a childhood experience. So this one engineer, he is an ex-Marine. He actually said he's one of, he's in the middle of seven boys only boys, no sisters. And immediately I was like, oh, your poor mother. <laughs> I was like essentially eight, eight guys, this poor woman. 
Um, and so then he tells his story about the kids' summer break. Mom and dad are off at work. So the older siblings are responsible for the younger siblings, which, you know, that always goes well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then there's seven boys. So they decided to play this game of jumping off the roof because why not? <laughs> <laughs> so the first couple jump off the roof. No problem. It's his turn. He jumps off the roof and he breaks his arm, breaks his leg, and he's pretty bruised up. And this is before cell phones. And so now they're all kind of gathered around him, looking at him. They've got to get him to the emergency room. And so, you know, the ones that can drive, (laughs) get him in the car, they get him to the emergency room. And so he gets to the emergency room and, you know, his bro, one of his brothers is kind of checking him in and he's sitting in the waiting room and across from him, he sees a mother and son and the mother has her arm around the son. And he immediately has this pain. He's like, I I just want my mother. Right. And of course they're calling her. She's at work. It's going to be a while before she gets there. And he has just this, this huge pain of all I want is my mother. As he's looking at this other kid from across who's sitting with his mother. And then he starts to say, I never want anybody to feel like they're alone. And before he finishes that part of the story, the engineer that he had been struggling with jumps, like literally jumps from his chair, points us at him accusatory and says, is that why every morning you come and you ask people, what are they doing and what's going on? And he kind of sat back in his chair, thought about it and said, yeah, it is. And he goes, I just thought you were being a jerk. I just thought you were just being a micromanaging asshole. <laughs> like it just, pardon the language, but that's what he said. Yeah. And the guy was like, no, I just don't want anybody to ever feel like they don't have support. They don't have what they need. And it was this funny thing this whole time, the guys had been in this conflict and it was all around the one guy thinking the other one was micromanaging and trying to boss him around. And he's the senior engineer and this guy's the junior engineer and how dare he boss... So it was just this funny sort of like that all got resolved from this simple exercise. Yeah. Right. And it, and again, I don't want to sound Pollyannic. It didn't completely resolve itself, but they got to a place where they began to understand each other. And so that's sort of an example of that. And then hearing that and watching that experience, I kind of said, okay, guys, let's just take a break and go back. And I started to think, how do I sort of gamify building the relationship so that they can have productive conflict. And so that's how I began to pull out that and try to figure out ways for them to interact, work on projects, have other people be part of that and gamify it. And I will tell you, they went kicking and screaming because if you know any engineers, the last thing they want to do is play a game. That's so childish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But they did it and they had a good time and they really began to build that trust in that relationship to have conflict over the project and the outcomes and not have conflict with each other because they started to realize they had been ascribing negative intent on what the other was doing as opposed to looking at it as positive intent. That kind of, that resonates with what we were talking about too, I think, in that uh, it's this idea that we need empathy. We need to understand other people mm-hmm. to be able to enter the danger with them. And I, I kind of have this feeling that um, 
if we have empathy, we're much less likely to ascribe, as you just said, negative intent. Do you think that's true? A hundred percent. I think the more empathy, and even if you can't get to empathy, but really more understanding of the other person's point of view, the more you're willing to not only have hard conversations, but exactly what you said, I'm willing to enter the danger zone with you because I have a sense of your intentions are honorable and I have a sense of, I trust you. I trust you to have my back because what we're about to go into is gonna be really hard. But if we have each other's back, we can do it together. And that's really what our workspaces should be. You know, it shouldn't be a space of we're saying, let's make work easier. Work's not gonna be easier, it's work. That's why I call it work. But how can we build trust and build this sense of empathy and understanding for one another so that when we have to go into those difficult points of our work, that those dangerous points where it really can become precarious, that we trust that the other person that we're walking into that space with has got our back. And so is it as simple as, hey, if I assume the best in others, that's automatically going to increase. And I say as simple as, I know that it's not simple to assume the best in others, but if we're able to get to a place we can do that, is that automatically going to increase our capacity and ability to enter the danger in a healthy way because we're seeing the the world, so to speak, from a different angle and we're not seeing them as trying to hurt us, but as trying to accomplish something. Can we just disagree with how they're doing it? Yeah, I think that is really the, it's as simple as that's the first step is that entering any sort of interaction with another human being, assuming that they are entering it with a positive intent, that they're not entering it to harm you is that first step. And I think the second step to that is working on discovering what it is that we have in common. I have this program that I call Talking to Strangers, and it's a, it's the um, Guild Guide to Talking to Strangers is what it's called, and it's named after someone, Christopher Guild, who told me this horrific story that he had around um, having a really negative experience building relationships at work. And um, I sort of created it because of him. So I named it after him. And that's really the, the whole premise is, how do I learn to discover who you are and discover what we have in common so that we can talk about what's different and what makes us unique so that we walk out of these interactions not feeling like we're strangers, but feeling like we're closer to each other. I mean, we may not necessarily be friends at the end of it, but we're not strangers. That's no. the ultimate goal. And I think whether it's a political disagreement, a philosophical disagreement, an economic disagreement, that if we walk in assuming positive in intent to start, and walk in trying to figure out what is it that we have in common? What's our common ground? Then when we get to the parts that are not common ground, we, we will be okay with that. We're not going to try. I'm not going to try to change who you are, Zach, and you're not going to try to change who I am. But if we can figure out what we have in common and figure out how do we get to that win-win? How do we get to the point that 
you come out of this situation whole and I come out of this situation whole. Whatever whole means to each of us. And that we walk away feeling like it. I don't have to change your mind, but I have to understand you. So how do we uh, change our mindset to be much more, this person thinks differently than me, I need that, so let me enter into the danger from this perspective of they can help instead of a hurt. How, mm-hmm. Do you have any tips on how we can, because I think our default is when we're entering into conflict with other people, when we're when we're having conversations with other people, if they think differently, our instinct is to dismiss them and say, ah, oh, they, they disagree, you know, they don't know what they're thinking or, or whatever. But I think we all know that's not true and it's our differences that make us stronger. But how do we make that shift? Yeah, I think we start off by saying that I don't, I'm going to walk into the situation and hopefully I'm not walking in with a carbon copy of myself. Because innovation and creativity don't happen if everyone's the same. It's not a Stepford-wide situation. So that's the first thing is I'm going to walk in hoping this person thinks differently than I do, hoping yeah. that I'm going to learn something from it. So if we walk into situations with a learner's mind of saying, I'm walking in not to be the expert in this moment, but to be the learner in this moment, you, you're already winning. Because now it's not about, I'm going to try to change your mind. It's not about you're wrong, I'm right. It's about I'm walking in with the spirit of learning. And now I'm going to listen to you in a learner's mind, which means now I'm going to be asking you more questions. So if the sky is purple in your mind, instead of walking in going, Zach's crazy, the sky's not purple. I'm walking in going, I'm curious as to why Zach thinks the sky is purple, which is a learner's mind. And so now I'm going to ask you a series of questions around the purple sky. (laughs) Yeah. So curiosity then, can you, can you talk a little bit more about, cause I'm hearing you say that curiosity is a really big deal when it comes to entering the danger. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, it's not, I would say that it's not only the big deal, it is the key. So if you imagine that the, Entering the danger would be like opening a door. The key to opening that door is curiosity. I have to have intellectual curiosity about you. And if I have that, and hopefully you have that about me, when I walk in, I'm walking in with a very curious spirit to learn from you, to to grow, to figure out how we achieve this goal together and not to change you. I think a lot of times we walk into conflicts and we think we have to change the person that we're walking in with. And if I'm walking in with more of a curiosity about why you have the viewpoint you have, and I'm not trying to change you, you're going to be much more open to receiving what I have to say, because you know, I'm walking in in a space of not trying to change you. I'm just curious. Yeah. So what's, Uh, let's say that I'm someone who I enter every conversation and I want to change how the other person is thinking because I'm right and they're wrong and they need to get on my page. (laughs) And and I'm, and I'm listening right now and I think, okay, well I I can see that I'm wrong, but I don't know how to take that first step towards being curious because when I'm in that conversation, all that comes to mind is they're wrong. I'm right. What's one step, something simple, 
that, that maybe is easy to remember that someone can do to, to start walking down that path? Ask questions. That's the first step. So if I walk in thinking I'm right, then I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to say is I need to make sure I'm right. So the way I'm going to make sure I'm right, if that's how I'm wired, I'm going to ask questions that will prove my theory is correct. And then listen. Yeah. And no why questions in that moment. <laughs> so, so in essence, um, if I'm hearing you right, they don't even necessarily need to change their mindset yet. They can still say, I'm right. I'm just going to ask you questions to prove to you that you're wrong. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, they can start that way. If that, if you are so set, if you have such a fixed mindset around, I'm right, you're wrong, then you have to approach it like a science project. I need to prove that I'm right. Then the first step of doing that is to ask questions. Yeah. And then hopefully I'm asking questions that are not leading, leading questions to prove I'm right in the sense of why would you say that? Not those type of questions, but honestly, almost like I'm going to ask questions that will allow you to poke holes in my theory because I think my theory is so good that I'm going to, I'm going to lead with, with those type of questions is a better attitude to have if you are that type of person, because now you are now going to, you're putting your thoughts sort of on trial, so to speak. You're yeah. putting those theories out there for someone else to play with and see, are you really right? And hopefully as the conversation goes, you'll begin to start questioning your own theories because that's really what being inquisitive is about. Curiosity is not about, I'm so curious in a gossip sense of the word curiosity is about i'm curious about the world what's around me and myself you know how i thought five years ago hopefully is different than what i think about now that i've grown that my curiosity has led me to new things i love how you brought up trying to think like a scientist and and prove ourselves wrong because that is the mindset the scientists take when mm -hmm. you know we learn about the scientific method in school where essentially what they do is they they have to prove themselves wrong and if they can't prove themselves wrong oh hey maybe we're right um <laughs> but right. but but they have that with such an open hand um i think that's a really powerful that's a really powerful uh, statement that you just said is, as having this idea of thinking like a scientist. So I really wanted to make sure that I highlighted that. How can we, outside of asking questions, is there something we can do, something we can say? Is there another thing that we can maybe um, get ourselves to into the habit of doing that will help us think more like a scientist and then to take that first step of asking questions? Yeah, my favorite scientist, if people have favorite scientists, I do, <laughs> is Richard Feynman. Um, and Richard Feynman, and for people who don't know who he is, he was part of the group that actually uh, created um, the bomb. And so uh, Richard Feynman is such a fascinating, was, because he's long past, but was such a fascinating guy because he approached life with a childlike wonder. 
And he was curious about everything. And he was always in this sense of play. If you've ever written, you know, he's got many, he wrote prolifically, pardon. And everything that he wrote in, in when he talked about himself and about his theories, there's this element of fun and play and game. And he's really probably the first uh, person that I read that made me realize you can bring gamification into the workplace and it be the right move because it's really about playing scientist in that sense. And so for him, one of the things that he always talks about when you're starting that journey of becoming a scientist was question everything. Everything, everything out of your mouth should never be just a statement of fact. It should be a question because then you're going to be open to learning because now you're seeking the answer to the question. It seems like maybe even before that, um, last week I had Bonnie on and she was talking about how we, how growth mindset is so important. It seems like that might also be, uh, maybe a prerequisite because if I don't think I can learn and grow, I'm not going to ask questions. Cause why would I ask questions if I can't learn and grow? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Or, or no, you're spot on. And to Bonnie's point, the growth mindset is really the type of mindset that's open to all of this. But here's my disclaimer. That doesn't mean that because I have a fixed mindset and I think everything I say is right, or I've learned everything I can learn that I can't change. I think that's the thing is that yes, people are predisposed to having either a fixed or a growth mindset. But I don't believe that you can't change a fixed mindset into a growth mindset. And it's about simply saying to someone, if you believe you're right, let's prove your theory out. And let's do that through the method of questioning, which is a Socratic method, right? So let's 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 play with that. And I think the moment that the other person can say to someone, let's play with that, let's prove your theory right. It opens someone who's not a growth mindset person, who has that fixed mindset, to be willing to play with you. That's the key. I think that's why I get so excited about game-based learning and the neuroscience of play. Because the truth is, the more we invite people to come play with us, the more open they become and the more they're willing to grow and learn because they're having fun and they don't realize they're having they're learning. You know, it's how we trick kids to to learn. <laughs> yeah. So, so this idea of game based learning, in essence, bypasses our brain and this fixed mindset that we have. Is is this what I'm hearing? That that yes. if we do introduce gamification into our work, because we we don't think, oh, I can't learn that, we start learning anyways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the the principle of game based learning is. I'm going to introduce an activity that's really based in fun, humor, and enjoyment. And our brains, so our brains are pretty dumb. (laughs) Any neuroscientists will tell you, our brains are not that smart. And so the fact that we introduce that, it shuts down this part of our brain that thinks I have to be the expert, I have to be right. And it activates all the, the, the learning pathways and it activates competition because we like to we like to play. We like to win. That's why we play. We yeah. play to win. 
And so it activates all of those parts of our brain. And so unbeknownst to us in the, in the moment, we're learning. And that's why when you design things with game-based learning, the debrief is so important because it's in the debrief when people all of a sudden go, oh, I learned that. Oh, that's my aha moment. That that's when I always yeah. say that's the juice, right? Yeah. The game is just to kind of soften you up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But then when you're in the debrief, that's when that's my favorite part because I see the light bulbs. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden people are like, oh, I got that. Oh, that's how we're doing this. Ah, that's the idea. And it came yeah. because they let go of being the expert of that fixed mindset. And yeah. they just went into growth without knowing it. So can we use that platform of the debrief? Is that a good opportunity to say, okay, now that we've gone through this process, this is what we learned that we need to enter the danger around? Or do you do that at a separate time? Is it important to separate those? No, I think it's most important to do it right after the, the game. Because that that's the moment where they're able to reflect on the experience and the experience is fresh, right? If they go off and they have to like a week before you come back and do that debrief, the experience isn't raw. It isn't fresh for them. And so doing that debrief right after allows people to have those aha moments that we all talk about. And more importantly, it now allows them to start to think about how do I apply what I learned? Because that's the piece that's always missing. You know, how many times have you heard a great speaker and you've enjoyed their talk and you're like, I learned so much. And then you go back to your office and you're like, I don't know how to apply this. Yeah. The debrief of the game allows them to begin to formulate how I'm going to apply this right away. So now I can go off and actually apply what I've learned so that I can enter the danger zone with people who may not have had the same experiences that I had. Yeah. So how much of your time uh, in when you're playing these games, is it primarily you're trying to build trust so that that builds the platform for them to enter the danger? Or is that really saying, no, this is this game, the gamification you're doing, is that to teach them the processes of entering the danger? It's a combination of both. You know, when we think about what is called the traditional ice, so I don't believe in icebreakers, by the way, a little side note, <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in them. Um, but the process of getting people ready to play, that's where we start to introduce those concepts of trust, right? So in the instructions of what they're going to do in their interactions with each other. So I'm a firm believer that every moment is a learning opportunity and a learning moment. So in each moment, I try to make sure there's something that's getting them closer to building trust with each other. Yeah. And that the game then helps them to continue to reinforce that trust piece and also the process systems learning that they have to learn for whatever the game is so that they can go to the next level, which is entering that danger zone together. But it all has to be built under that foundation of trust. I can't think about when you were a kid and you had to go outside and play with another kid. You had to have a level of trust to play with that kid. You're not going to play with someone that you don't trust. 
And so that's really what this is about is that we have to build that level of trust that allows kids to go play with each other to build up the trust of the experience of you, right? So what if I'm a, a an extremely introverted person and and I don't like conflict or entering the danger or anything like that at the best of times, but when you're trying to convince me to also play a game before I do that, how, <laughs> how do you um, approach that kind of a person with that kind of personality who, who the whole thing maybe terrifies them uh, maybe they they don't want anything to do with it. Um, I'm sure you've come across that before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's always that where people are fearful of, of it's outside of their comfort zone. And games are outside of our comfort zones. Let's just start there. The whole process is outside of everyone's comfort zone, whether they're an introvert or an extrovert. It's outside of everyone's comfort zone. And so the, the first step is to acknowledge that. Like you, I start off when I'm doing my instructions, acknowledging that this is going to be uncomfortable. The degree of uncomfortable is really going to be based on who we are as people. But when I design games, I try to design it so that it hits the seven different styles of learning. So that if there is, there's a visual aspect to it, there's a tactile aspect to it, there's the audio aspect to it. There is the ability to see color. Like I'm trying to make things colorful. That's part of that visual aspect. There's a musicality to it. So I try to hit all the different aspects of learning so that, because the truth is we don't have one as, one way that we learn. We use all those aspects to learn. We just favor some over the other as individuals. So I try to hit all of them so that people are coming in with a level of comfort that there's something familiar in the game. Because if it's completely unfamiliar, that brings more anxiety. But if there's a familiarity to the play, I'm going to be more willing, no matter what where I am on the spectrum of introverted to extroverted, to participate. That's the key. So an example, I did a critical thinking game with a group. And I had them, I based it on like old 60s game shows, like the dating game and uh, Family Feud, (laughs) those kind of game shows. And so with that, they were familiar with how the the, the dating game worked, how Family Feud worked. So because they were familiar with that, they were able to then go, oh, okay, I at least have a context of how to play. So whenever you're creating these situations, you want to create them so that the play is familiar, even though the concepts are foreign. I want to go back to something that you said really, really early on about how we feel like we have to be stoic in a lot of ways at work, Mm -hmm. um, which is in many ways the antithesis of play. Do you think this idea of stoicism is inhibiting our ability to enter the danger with one another? Yeah, it absolutely is. If I feel like I have to have this veneer of um, what I like to call conforming professionalism, right? What we think is the standard practice that I have to be serious all the time it inhibits you from seeing who I truly am because I'm not bringing my true self. 
And what I find is, is that life isn't like that. Life is not really stoic. I mean, if you think about it, when we watch like cinema, as an example, when we look at comedy, the idea is that comedy should always be in a sense of constant funny. That's not how life works. Sometimes it's dark. Sometimes it's serious. Sometimes you could have the most serious moment and then you break into laughter because it alleviates the tension. That's the reality of life. And so we're asking people to show up to work in ways that they don't show up in life. So I think that there needs to be a revolution on how we define professionalism and allowing people to show up to work the way we show up in life in all its messiness. So tell me if this makes sense, because I'm kind of I may be seeing a pattern here where if we're if, if we are told maybe it's not verbally but we're, we're told by the culture or whatever that we have to be stoic. We can't bring our whole selves to work. Then we're going to hide whatever that is, which means that we aren't going to have the vulnerability that we need. And, and as we, we both know, vulnerability is critical uh, to, ha- to having effective trust. So if you don't have that effective trust, you're not going to have the conflict. So in essence, is it kind of that pattern where you, you break this idea that we can't be who we are because if we can't be who we are we're never going to have this sense of vulnerability and i imagine it's even deeper than that um and this is a a a little bit aside from entering the danger but we can't be vulnerable with people we can't share who we are i imagine it's really difficult to even build strong and healthy relationships at work absolutely you are then not in a healthy organization because you're not truthful And the basis of trust is truth. I have to be honest. I have to be truthful in order for you to trust me. And if you feel like I'm always hiding something from you, there's always going to be this sense that you cannot trust me because I'm hiding something from you, right? And so if, but it's not to say that people show up to work trying to hide things from each other. If the environment is set up where I know I can't bring my true self to work, I can't say my truth, I can't be who I I am at work, I have to be this other version of me, then the environment is set up to never truly have a, a, a true foundation of trust. And then there's no way that I can have really productive conflict. I can't do it. Because I'm always going to have this sense of there's there's something missing and it's not safe for me to even point out that there's something missing. What's one step that someone can take if they're in that kind of an environment? Mm-hmm. What's one step they can take toward making it better? Uh, and let's assume they aren't the boss. So if they're not in charge, sometimes they can feel really helpless um, and like you're stuck. Uh, But there's usually something that we can do. Can you give maybe one, maybe two tips? Yeah, so that's absolutely the case. You can still be a leader and not have that leadership role. And how you do that is you commit to taking the risk of bringing your authentic self to work. 
Meaning that even if it feels like it's a dangerous environment for me to say my truth, I need to make sure that I'm honest about what I, the work I'm doing, how I'm doing it, what I will and will not do or tolerate. And yes, the truth is, is that sometimes the environment is so toxic, the answer is to leave, but it's also to recognize when I, I can leave and when it's safe for me to leave. But it's also saying, before I take the step of leaving, let me at least try to have an authentic conversation with my peers. If you can feel like you can have an authentic conversation with your peers, then as a group, as a collective, you can begin to start making changes. Well, Marie, I'm super grateful for this conversation. Thank you for coming, for being on. Uh, I really want to keep talking to you uh, for hours and hours more, and I wish that we could. Um, before we go, um, I've got a lightning round of questions I'd like to go over, if that's okay. Uh, yes, I'm scared, but I'll do it. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, what is your favorite leadership quote? Oh, what is my favorite leadership quote? Oh, wow. Um I just, I just had one earlier. Can we come back to that one? That's yeah, a hard one. That's fine. We'll come back that's to it. That's many. fine. That's that's no worries. <laughs> What's one underrated skill in leadership? Humor. Favorite author? Oh, my favorite author. Oh, um, uh, Adam Grant. Oh, no, Which... I think that. Maxwell Gladwell. I think he's my okay. favorite. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, you mean? Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. yeah. He's my favorite. Um, yeah. What's the most frustrating excuse someone can make for not entering the danger? Oh, it's not worth it. Favorite question to ask other people? How did that make you feel? What's something that you do to make sure you're always learning? Uh, reading constantly. Favorite podcast? <laughs> okay, this is really silly. Don't judge me. <laughs> no judgment. No judgment here at all. Just recently, I just found this podcast. Um, it is, it's a dating podcast and I'm enjoying it because there's actual leadership lessons in it, which is really crazy. <laughs> and I'm pulling it up so I get the name right. Okay. I'm horrible with names. Um, I'm really horrible with names and it's just silly that I like this podcast. It's called uh, bad dates with Jamila, 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 Jamil. Okay. <laughs> um, and I just found it recently before that it was the Simon Sinek podcast. I love that. I love Simon Sinek and I listen to it all the time, but the bad dating one, I love it because the lot of the bad dates are really great examples of failures, failure to perform to plan failure to plan they're yeah. really great examples of that and great like life lessons <laughs> even though i'm married and i don't date it's just i love listening to the bad dates yeah <laughs> uh a book that you keep rereading a book that i keep rereading uh first break all the rules author do you know the author uh who is the author of that book 
I don't know off the top of my head, but I keep rereading it all the time. The other one that I reread quite a bit, which is sounds really like duh, um, but I love rereading um, Death by Meeting. Yep, Patrick Lencioni's. That's a really good one because meetings are kind of my jam. So yeah, Yeah. um, so the the first one was first break all the rules. Yeah, first break all the rules. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure if you Google it, you'll be able to find it. First yeah, break all the rules. Yeah, I like that one a lot to to reread. There's a lot of great uh, quotes and lessons in life in there. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Now, you've got me stumped on the quote. I'm trying to think of a good quote. <laughs> well, I'll keep going. You can keep thinking okay. of it. I'll keep uh, thinking about that one. What's a quality that you see in others that makes you excited to get to know them? Curiosity. Favorite way to build trust with other people? A share a meal. How does gratitude impact your life? Oh, well, it's a big impact. I think that um, it's important to find things that you're grateful for, even in the smallest moments, because those things are the things that bring you joy. How do you stay sharp at work? Um, learn from others. What do you do to rest? Uh, (laughs) Um, I actually crochet and, um, I just recently started doing stained glass. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, last one. And then maybe we'll get back to the leadership quote. Um, Mm -hmm. is white chocolate really chocolate? I'm gonna say no. Because it doesn't taste like chocolate, even though it is chocolate. <laughs> this was much better if you could have seen her face. I wish you could have. We, I wish you could have seen the face she made when I asked that question. It was wonderful. <laughs> and I'm actually not a chocolate person. I don't. I, I mean, it's okay. Yeah. But yeah. But white chocolate, definitely no. Okay. No. no. Okay. Do you have anything? For a favorite leadership quote. Uh, yeah, point. actually, okay, so here's the thing. I don't know if it's a leadership quote, but it is my favorite quote, and it comes from The Looking Glass. Um, I think about six different impossible things I can do each day. So, and that's yeah. not an exact quote, but it's, yeah, it's about the impossible. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, well, thank you for answering those. Uh, before we go, how can uh, my listeners find you? Where, uh, where are you at? Email, social media, whatever you want to share. Sure. Um, I you, They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's just my name, Marie Genevieve Pollock. Um, I can be found, our website is the theprimealchemygroup.com. Uh, on Instagram, uh, if they want to connect with me personally, my Instagram is Marie Chan, C-H-A-N, 22P. It's a running joke that <laughs> um, that I won't explain. <laughs> or they can just Google uh, Prime Alchemy. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you again, uh, Marie, so much. I've loved this conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, and I look forward to the next time we get to chat. Oh, I love doing this. This was fantastic. Thank you. Although I have a quick question before we go. Of course. I want to know your answer to the the white chocolate is chocolate. Absolutely not. It's not chocolate. No, that's a, that's my answer. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Of course. <laughs> Bye, Marie. 
Bye, Zach. Thanks again. <laughs> what an awesome conversation. Uh, I got so caught up talking with Marie that I completely lost all track of time, which is why this episode uh, was so much longer. But I'm super grateful that she was willing to come in and share her wisdom with us. Thank you again, Marie, for coming and being a guest. I'm going to put all the links that Marie mentioned in the show notes. If you want to go check those out and find her, you can find those in the show notes, which I highly recommend you do. I also apologize that I didn't get an episode, this episode, uploaded last week. I was traveling and I totally forgot to plan properly so that it uploaded while I was away. But I've got that sorted this time around and going forward, we should be back to weekly episodes. Next week, I have the privilege of having Chris Benzinger on. He's also a principal consultant with The Table Group, and I know that you're going to get so much wisdom from him. So please come back next week to listen to my conversation with Chris. Until next time, let's choose kindness, empathy, and curiosity.